Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 90. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Oftentimes, success and luck are viewed as one, but our guest this episode, Scott Shapiro, knows that the definition of luck is when opportunity and hard work meet. With a love of sports, storytelling, and business, Scott would begin his journey in Sports Talk Radio briefly with ESPN before moving to Atlanta as the producer for Mayhem in the AM on 790 of the Zone. And then he would make his way back to Bristol, Connecticut, spending almost nine years with ESPN as a producer for Mike and Mike before being promoted to director of programming for such shows as Mike and Mike, The Herd, and SVP and Rosillo. In 2015, iHeartMedia and the West Coast came calling, and Scott would make the move to Los Angeles as the Vice President of Programming for Fox Sports Radio and Premier Networks, overseeing the company's sports programming and content, which reaches nearly 8 million weekly listeners on more than 400 stations nationwide. Here's Episode 90 with Scott Shapiro. Scott, thank you so much for allowing me to steal some of your time. Of course. Jump here on the podcast with me. I greatly appreciate it. And as we were talking, I presume you have made the transition to California lifestyle. (laughs) Is that right? I am loving it here. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I naturally, the weather, the mountains, the palm trees, the blue skies, the beaches, I've been here three and a half years and I still feel like it's a novelty. I feel brand new. I feel thankful every day to be here. But the great thing is, while I love Los Angeles, it's very hard not to. I love that. I love the job as much as I love the location. I've been very blessed that everything has worked out career-wise in addition to location So it's a great marriage between the two. Great place and a great job. Could not be happier. And, you know, when you take uh, a leap of faith, when you move your family uh, with, with a two-year-old and, and a pregnant wife, and you move cross-country. Uh, we were in a suburb of New York City in Westport, Connecticut, And when you make that decision to move, you know, clearly it's a risk. You weigh the upsides, you weigh the downsides. And I'll tell you, even the upsides in what I thought may have been the best case scenario, I would say it's been better. And while it's still a tremendous risk, I'm so glad we made the move. I couldn't be happier out here. And what was the most difficult part of making that decision, taking that leap of faith to move out to the West Coast? I mean, you were with ESPN. And I mean, I know you had a good gig going there. So what was that like? Yeah. And there were a few different things I was weighing because my contract had expired at ESPN. And for about a year, I had been looking around, trying to find out really the best place to land. So I'd been networking for a full year. And this job here, it came from a conversation that I had probably six months prior. So my message to everyone is network, 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 because you never know when that could pay dividends. And yeah, the conversation was actually with the person who sat in this chair prior to me. And I talked to him just, you know, he's been a mentor of mine for quite a while and somebody who I used to work with. And in talking to him, never did I think he was going to be leaving this company. It was just to, you know, see what he had to think, get his perspective. And then many months later, he called and said, well, 
I'm leaving this job and I've actually recommended you for it. <laughs> so it turned out to be great. But going back to the decision, yeah, there were a lot of different jobs I had considered on both coasts, moving south, moving north, moving west, moving all over the place. But this had everything. It had, I, I really liked the promise of what this specific opportunity was paired with the location with who my bosses were to be and still are. So there, you know, when you make a pro and con list leading up to a move, there are so many decision points. And trust me, it, you know, we waited, but we had to make a pretty quick decision. Oh, you did. When that job came available, they were certainly <laughs> hoping to fill the thing as soon as possible. So it was a very quick decision, especially when you have a house with a mortgage and a baby and, a, and another one coming. But it worked out beautifully. And yeah, moving is never easy. But when you're hopeful for the next opportunity, yeah, it puts a little wind at your back. And what was that promise that you felt that was so great with this opportunity? The brands that I'm working for and the people who I'm working with. So the brands, iHeart, biggest audio company in the world. To work at this company as a content creator and as somebody who could really get my hands dirty in it, it was a great opportunity. Married with the Fox Sports brand, being with Fox Sports Radio, you're, you're putting together two very quality brands in a very crowded media atmosphere with iHeart and with Fox Sports Radio. And I'll tell you what I fell in love with because, you know, brands are brands, but ultimately you're working with people and you're building families. The, the, the two people who I work with, Don Martin, who's my direct boss, and Julie Talbot, our president, I'm telling you, I fell in love with that dynamic before I took the job and even through the interview stage. But the closer I have gotten with them, the more I would go to war with them and run through a wall for them. Uh, it's truly a family atmosphere. People say that. I'm telling you, they follow it. So they it's not walk. cliche? It's not. You know what? It hasn't been here. And there's accessibility, there's transparency, and they're very fair. But not just how they react with me. Forget me. That's how they treat everybody. And as a manager, because I, mean, I look at my job through, listen, there's a lot of people that I'm responsible for at this company, and I know that above me, they have everyone's back. And that's a beautiful thing to be heard, but know that they truly do have everyone's back. And it's been very refreshing, and it wasn't always like that in my career prior to that. And so just making sure that I understand, and even for the listeners, when it's Premier Network, iHeartRadio, Fox Sports, how is it all tied together? And, and can you explain that? Yeah, and it's, you know, I don't expect anyone in the audience to just <laughs> naturally know that, but here's, my, here's the answer I give. And I actually had this question asked to me about 20 minutes ago from someone else, so I just gave this answer. So iHeart, iHeart's the biggest audio company in the world. iHeart has 120 million plus registered users, whether they have the app on their phone or whether they're registered online. Biggest audio company. Now, beyond the audio, they have big events, the music awards, mm. the country festival, et cetera. So it's a massive brand. Clearly, you know, it used to be Clear Channel. So rolled up in iHeart, there's a ton of different divisions. One division within iHeart is Premier Networks. That's the syndicated talk networks within iHeart. Most of them are standalone talk brands that are you know, a syndicated show that's affiliated all over the country. You know, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck. Sean Hannity, Brian Seacrest, Mario Lopez, Steve Harvey, the list goes on and on and on. Every show within Premiere is a standalone show that's syndicated with the exception of Fox Sports Radio, which happens to be a 24-7 network. So iHeart typically is made up of thousands of radio stations that are local stations around the country. 
What's unique about Fox Sports Radio, because it is a 24-7 talk network, it's rolled up through Premier as a syndicated talk element, but we're the only 24-7 entity within Premier. And then, of course, it's the Fox Sports brand. Many think, oh, you work at Fox. Well, we're very close partners with Fox. And the history there, Clear Channel at the time, which became iHeart, Clear Channel in 2000 partnered with Fox. And Fox didn't have their own sports radio network in-house. They partnered with Clear Channel. And for 17 years, Clear Channel, now iHeart, has been able to use the Fox Sports brand, the entities, the logo, etc., and Fox Sports Radio, owned by iHeart, represents that Fox Sports brand. We have a great relationship. It's a, it's a very close partnership. And we're able to utilize the brand powers of both iHeart and all of the resources that iHeart has with that Fox Sports brand, which in sports is, I mean, it's, I mean, oh, it's a huge name. Yes. Yeah, huge name. So now before all of this happened, mm-hmm. Before your position now, I mean, was radio something growing up that you always wanted to be in? I've been an avid fan ever since I was young. And I grew up in Minneapolis, and K-Fan in Minneapolis is a very strong station. It puts up, I mean, just insane shares. But I grew up a sports fan, first and foremost. You know, I was lucky to go to a lot of games as a kid, and I couldn't get... I, I'd go to the games, but constantly all I wanted was a reaction. And I was a big media follower, whether it was all the local news stations talking about the sports teams, sports talk radio. So I always knew I wanted to work at it. I didn't know necessarily in what capacity, but I always wanted to touch it and be in it. And I went to Emory University in Atlanta, majored in business and minored in journalism because I knew I always wanted to kind of touch the business side of this industry, of the media entertainment industry, and specifically the sports piece of that. So I wanted to have that writing background, but I wanted to have that business sense because ultimately I wanted to work on the business side of this industry. And somehow through a long, strange path, I found my way here. (laughs) I'm not necessarily utilizing everything that I learned, you know, (laughs) like discreetly in college, but I'll tell you, with that writing background, with the business knowledge, I think everything in the background has kind of led into, you know, having the knowledge to do this job and do it well. Yeah. So I, it, it's been it's been a crazy journey, but um, it's it's been very fulfilling. Well, you've lived in basically every corner of the country, right? <laughs> Minneapolis, Atlanta, up to New York, Connecticut, and then out here, obviously. Yeah. So growing up, then, as you mentioned, you. Went to a lot of games. Were you a big Minnesota Vikings fan? Were you all Minnesota Twins fans? I mean, what was your favorite sport growing up? So I'm very loyal, and I still live and die with all the Minnesota sports teams. That's not a good thing. That shows my loyalty. (laughs) Yes, it does. Because for the Minnesota, whether it's Minneapolis, St. Paul, we're one of the, I think there might be 12 or 13, somewhere within there. You know, cities with four major league sports teams. When you talk MLB, NBA, NFL, and NHL, we have all four. Since the Capitals just won the Stanley Cup, the longest drought of the four sports cities is now Minneapolis, St. Paul. So it's been since 1991, 27 years since one of my teams has won, and I, you know, I'm loyal. Yeah, and I've are. lived in a lot of places, and very easily <laughs> I could have latched on with, boy, oh, the Yankees, the Red Sox. That's right. There's some other good teams out right there that the you've Dodgers, been close to. You know, as of this moment, are in the World Series. I mean, I could have latched on to any of these teams. I am a diehard Minnesota fan. I'm loyal. My favorite, I'll tell you, growing up, it was actually the Minnesota Gopher college basketball team. Today, to be quite honest, 
for some reason, I have such a soft spot for the Timberwolves, mainly because the story arc of that franchise, it, it's so relatable to me, mainly because of the heartache. And I so badly want them to get over the top. So this organization, not many people realize this when you break it down. This is their 30th year, okay? So they've had 29 complete seasons. They have advanced past the first round of the playoffs once in 29 years. Once in 29 years. That is utter failure. And I, because of that... So why that, do you relate to that? I, I, relate may not be the right word, but I have such a soft spot and I so Such badly, sympathy? Like, yeah, and, and I've always rooted for an underdog and maybe that's being from Minneapolis and going up and thinking, oh boy, you got these New York teams and the Boston teams that are going to poach all of our players that... There's something about the underdog. So I root for an underdog in a neutral game that I don't have a rooting interest in. But there's something about the Timberwolves. I've lived and died. They started in 1989. You know, I was about 10 years old at the time, and I fell in love. And I've I've been there through all the growing pains. So I'm going to stay to hopefully well, one to day at least enjoy something. <laughs> exactly. Maybe a 500 season is satisfaction enough at this point. But and what's crazy? So they've advanced past the first round once in 29 years. This isn't like the NFL playoffs. This is a first round that has basically, that has over half the league. And the second round, where they've been one out of 29 times, is eight out of 30 teams. And that's where they've been one in 29 tries. And I still, I just, you know what? It, it may not be relatable, but I just, I want it so badly. Of course. Because, because you know, when, when you see that story, and you can relate it to other things in life, but like, I just want it to happen so bad because they haven't. But really, I'm, I'm a fan of all of Minnesota teams. I mean, the Vikings, you know, I don't miss those games. I love them with all my heart. But at times, I'll hate watch them in addition to the Timberwolves. But I just, you know. Just because they let you down? Oh, of course. Oh, no. it's, it's it, it, They won't win anything in my lifetime. But I will have hope every time. And I've always said I'm not going to get suckered into it. Like, I'll watch every game and I'll get excited like any fan. But they constantly have let us down. I mean, they've never won the Super Bowl, and they've been in the dance. And there's some franchises that never make it there. Yeah. You know, there's some franchises that just, you know, they're just futile. But the Vikings, what they do remarkably of is they give that false hope. <laughs> and they, you know, they go to the <laughs> NFC Championship game off of a 15-1 and season in 98, and they're about to win the game with a field goal kicker who hadn't missed he all year. Misses. And boom, he misses, and, and they were heavy favorites in that game. Then you got Brett Favre driving to win the game against the Saints. And, of course, he throws across his body. It's an interception when he could have just probably, like, tiptoed to get a first down. So it's false hope. And I keep promising myself that I'm not going to, like, I'm just not going to let my emotions get the best of me. And sure enough, last year there was a miracle in Minneapolis. <laughs> and you're the right Viking back in Saints. <laughs> and what do I do right after that game? I buy a ticket from Los Angeles to Philadelphia <laughs> and go to Philadelphia, the worst place to witness a game as an opposing fan. And I go and I step into that environment, and we know what happened in that game. I, I'm not sure if I can ever step foot into that city again. It's where my wife went to college, but I don't think I can ever go to Philadelphia again. I am scarred forever, and I, I told myself I wouldn't buy in and get strung <laughs> along, and there I wind up in Philadelphia thinking my life was going to end just because I was wearing the color purple. Oh, of course, but that's sports, though. It just sucks us back in, right? The drama is incredible. It does. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's real. And this took a miracle. And I mean, listen, That's I was right. going to watch the game. I was you know, going to be avidly rooting. And trust me, if they lost that game to the Saints, it would have been one of the more depressing moments of my life. 
But yeah, they win. I buy a ticket to Philly, and yeah, I mean, and I'm sure something may happen this year, and I'll get strung along. Again, oh, of course, so. like I said, that that is what draws us back into sports. How did you get though from Minneapolis to Atlanta? Because most people, when they're in Minneapolis, it seems to me that they're very loyal to the state yes. and they stay there. So why Atlanta? And why Emory? And, and you're right about the loyalty. So I applied to a bunch of colleges, most on the East Coast, a lot of liberal arts schools, and I was just looking for the best possible education. And I wasn't going to stay in Minnesota for college. That I knew. Now, I was very open to moving back after. I mean, I love Minneapolis. I love the city. The entertainment is great. There's many good restaurants. It's a great city. But I knew I was going to go out for college. I was down to two schools, Michigan and Emory. And they couldn't be any more different. One is a, you know, a cold Midwestern, Big Ten, you know, football, basketball school. And then you have this liberal arts college that's small, very, you know, very well documented how great the education was. It was a top, I think a top 10 school at the time in the Harvard Business Review. However, they rank colleges. I don't know, but it was. So it was a very hot school at the time and really moving up the academic charts. And But it's not a big sports school. Not at all. Not a big sports school at all. So I applied just regular decision. And prior to finding out whether I got in or not, I, I, had come, I, like, I was set to go to Michigan. I had visited. I knew which dorm I was going to be in. I had a Michigan <laughs> hat, a Michigan polo, Michigan shorts, Michigan sandals. I was going to Michigan. Like, it was set. And I get something in the mail in early March saying that I was admitted to Emory University. And I figured, hey, it's supposed to be a good school. I've heard good things about it. Let's, let's just book a trip and go down there. And I went in mid-March, and it's freezing still in Minneapolis at the time. And I go down there. It's 80 degrees. <laughs> there are people suntanning on their lawns of their fraternity, like literally suntanning in bikinis. People are playing outdoors, and the campus looks like a country club. I mean, it's a country It's club. very nice. And I go down there, and within two hours given that I was allowed to actually go to the school I was admitted, like, all right, this is where I'm going. Now, the sports part of it hurt. Trust me, it did. I had a big Had to be school. since you were a big sports guy. In yeah. Michigan, that was a, I mean, that's a big-time historical sports program. Of course. Uh, I'll tell you, if Emory wasn't so close to all of the major league sports teams in Atlanta, if it wasn't attached to a city, there's no way I could have done it. Like if it was in a remote location, three hours removed from a major city, not a chance. But the fact that it was in such a cosmopolitan area, knowing that I could, oh, I could go to hot games, Brave games, Falcons games, which I did, Thrasher games at the time, I went to all of those. So I felt like I was still in a major league city despite not having the college athletics. Of course, and yeah. And I, I loved it. My brother and sister followed me to Emory. Yeah. Now, how much younger were they? Brother two years younger, sister six years younger than me, four years younger than my brother. Okay, so you were there when your brother was there then, but not your sister, obviously. Correct. I just graduated when she started, but yeah, it was great to have my brother come down two years after me. But now you were still living in Atlanta then, I presume, when your sister came down there? Mm -hmm. Because now you make the transition into 790 to Zone. Is that where you first go? Believe it or not, my first job right out of college was actually at ESPN. So I graduated from Emory, moved up to Connecticut did entry-level TV at ESPN. So I was putting the highlights together for SportsCenter and for you know, NFL Live, Baseball Tonight, all those shows. So it was an entry-level production job. Did that for about a year and a half and then got recruited to go back to Atlanta to then work at 790. Okay. I just think it's fascinating that it's such a small world in terms of 
790 The Zone, when I was in Atlanta, that's what I listened to. Nice. <laughs> Mayhem in the AM. Yeah, so no, I know it very and well. I love, I love that show. I love that station. It <laughs> pains me that it doesn't exist anymore. And I'll be back down there this year for the Super Bowl. And it will bring back so many good memories. And I'm going to want to turn on 790 and hear my guys. Now, they're all still there. Just That's on right. Other stations. Exactly. But, yeah, it pains me because I love those people. And I love, like, the fabric of that station and the family atmosphere there. And it's so different than a corporate culture. I mean, I went from there to ESPN. They couldn't be any more different. But I love the blood and guts and the people that made up 790 The Zone. I love and they. That's why, I mean, it's hard to leave ESPN. I left ESPN to go work for them back in Atlanta, and my God, did I love it. And what do you like more when you did a little bit of the TV side versus the radio side? Are you just a radio guy? Well, I enjoy the radio side more because it allows personalities to be personalities. It's not reading a teleprompter and being plastic and speaking in a very, very short window. Like oftentimes, you know, you're literally put in a box on TV and you can't necessarily be yourself. Where with radio, you can be intimate. You can be a storyteller. And I really think the audience feels when they're listening to a compelling personality on the radio, they feel like they know them. And the host will never have met them. But you feel like you know somebody because radio is such an intimate medium it's that you can achieve with others. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I remember growing up watching Dan Patrick mm-hmm. on ESPN. Sure. And I didn't know he had a radio show. Mm-hmm. And then the first time I heard the Dan Patrick show on radio, it blew me away because I felt like this guy is completely different on the radio than he is on TV. Yeah. And the guy on the radio was hysterical. Not yeah. that he wasn't on TV, but just even more so on radio. So to your point, just the unscriptedness. Yeah. And you probably learned a lot more about Dan. Yes. You got a better sense of a sense of humor. And you could relate to him a lot better where, hey, that's just a guy on TV giving you the highlights. Yeah, that's great. It's a guy who's in a suit operating like he's in a suit where on the radio, it's like the guy you're at a bar with, you know, having a beer, talking to like choosing to spend time with that person as, a, as opposed to just getting your highlights from that person. So you're, you know, as an audience member, you're investing time within a personality and you're getting personality. You're getting that relationship back, even though it's one way, but it feels like it's two way. What made you decide to go back to ESPN then, to leave 790 The Zone? And I never thought I would. Never in a million years. Living in Atlanta for the second time, never did I think I would go back to Connecticut. Uh, and I had a condo in Atlanta. I was loving life. I'm in my mid-20s. I actually lived with my brother at the time after he graduated <laughs> okay. college. And I couldn't have been happier. I loved it there, and I loved everything about it. But an opportunity became too good to be true. And when Mike and Mike, when the job became available to produce that show, they had reached out to me. And at first, I said, boy, it would take an opportunity of a lifetime for me to come back because I'm loving this situation here. I'm loving living in Atlanta. And it turned out, you know, they told me, hey, there's big things ahead with Mike and Mike. There's big things ahead. And this is in the fall of 2005. Okay, so we're talking, you know, 13 years ago at this point. And I'm like, okay, big things ahead. And I just figure that's what they're saying to try to sell me on the job. Cool. They're just recruiting you. So I go up to Bristol. They interview me. Oh, big things are happening. Big things are happening. I get back to Atlanta and I turn on the TV and there's a commercial with Mike and Mike in a diner. And I'm starting to see these commercials nonstop. I'm like, wow, they're putting some resources into the show. Okay, they might be onto something. Then I go to USA Today. I open it up. Oh, Mike and Mike to move from ESPN News to ESPN2. Ah, okay. I guess big things are happening to the show. 
Then I go to ESPN.com and there's these yellow banner ads all over ESPN.com. Every page, Mike and Mike, Mike and Mike, Mike and Mike. So I'm literally, you know, throughout the long multi-month interview process, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if they offer me this job, it's going to be hard to turn back. down. Yeah, I think I'm going to be moving back to Connecticut. And sure enough, <laughs> I moved back to Connecticut. So I think I'm the only person who's not from Atlanta or Connecticut to move from Atlanta to Connecticut, back to Atlanta, and back to Connecticut. <laughs> exactly. And now I'm not living in either. But yeah, right. so I've, I've lived I told in each you of those a strange twice. path. Yes. So yeah, I got from the Midwest to the Southeast, to the Northeast, to the Southeast, to the Northeast, and now to the West. And very honestly, happy with the whole journey. I mean, every step I've taken, you know, I've made a lot of moves for the career, and they've all been for the career. And with that, we talked about that pro and con list earlier. Yeah, you know, I've made that decision many times, and each time it's been a big risk, and it's been shaking up the norm in my life. But each time it's been for a step up, fortunately, and each time it's been the right move. And when did you meet your wife in this whole process? Hmm, boy. Kidding. I, I know exactly. So we met in New York City. We met on January 10th, 2009. So we're about to, I haven't known her for 10 years yet. We haven't made it there yet, but yeah. that will come in January. Uh, we've been married now for seven and a half years, but we were set up on a blind date in New York City. And it happened. It was crazy. It was right after I produced Mike and Mike and became a manager. And I was actually very excited because my life was finally going to be normal. I had done mornings in Atlanta and then mornings with Mike and Mike. And while I was still going to be overseeing from a managerial perspective, Mike and Mike, I was going to have a normal schedule. What do you mean normal? Normal, you know, not getting up at 3.34 in the morning. So having more of a standard, you know, it was still early, but I wasn't getting up at 3.34 in the morning. Yeah, that's early. I was really excited to, as as a single person at the time, I was excited to say, wow, don't have to get up as early anymore. I can now actually date and not have to worry about my alarm going off like in three hours. And the first week that I was off of that crazy schedule, the first week I was set up with my wife. So it happened right timing then and there. All the timing is. was crazy. But I was actually excited that, well, I'm, I'm going to actually go out and be a single person. And it really never happened. It never happened. Within one That's week, right. boom. Yeah. Now, when does Colin Cowherd come into the picture? So that happened, I'd been working with Mike and Mike from a managerial perspective for probably a year, a year and a half. And then there was a slight reorg and they decided to have me work with Colin as well. And I did that, it was probably about, I don't know, two, three years that I was with Colin. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what I love is that it came full circle. And the biggest acquisition we made here was bringing Colin from ESPN to Fox. And I mean, I just talked to Colin about an hour ago. It is, I mean, to have him here, it's, I mean, it's tremendous and it's great to, it's great to work with him again, but I like this version of Colin more than the ESPN version because he can be more free. There's less restrictions. There's, you know, there's less hands in the cookie jar. He can be himself. And that was one of my big selling points to him when he came over that this is the Fox brand. You don't have the Mickey Mouse ears on anymore. And it's a lot more free in terms of what you're able to do. And his show has been a lot better as a result of you know, not feeling like he's wearing handcuffs. When you look back at you know, all of the different stops that you've had, what are some of the, if you can even pinpoint it down to some favorite moments or any times that you were somewhat starstruck of who was you know, in the building, you know, maybe people that you grew up idolizing, any yeah. of that? 
the most memorable, and I actually wrote a story for this on ESPN.com at the time. It was 2008, so a little over 10 years ago. Um, there was a period of time in July of that year where it was the last All-Star game at Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. So Mike and Mike played in the celebrity game. So I was down there with them and just you know, loads of celebrities playing in a softball game at Yankee Stadium. And <laughs> yeah, I'm down exactly. In the dugout, in the locker room on the field. That doesn't happen every day. No, it, it was incredible. <laughs> and that week we did our shows on Monday and Tuesday of that week from Grand Central Station. And we had just incredible guests that came by. And I mean, we're at Grand Central doing a show. I mean, it was remarkable. On Wednesday of that week, we did a Jimmy V uh, telethon where we raised a ton of money for cancer research. And it's just, it's such a special day when you're at that company and you raise so much money for cancer. And then the next day, we went to the White House. And that's, I mean, the true highlight of all of it, because I've done a lot of very cool sports things. But it was President Bush's last year. And he apparently, he did a, a softball game for children. And it was, it was really a fundraiser for, for children and for you know, athletics, et cetera. So he did this softball game and Mike and Mike were two of the voices that were announcing to the crowd there, this softball game. But with that came you know, a tour of the Oval Office, an opportunity to meet the president uh, you know, while he was outgoing, because that was leading into the election where Obama um, got elected for the first time. Um, and then Kenny Chesney did a concert in the Rose Garden of the White House. And we're sitting there, there's probably like 70 people, and you're sitting in the Rose Garden of the White House with Kenny Chesney playing a little private concert. So, I mean, that week, for that all to happen, you know, had to be surreal. Money for cancer, you go to the White House, you're doing shows from Grand Central, you're on the field with all these celebrities at the old Yankee Stadium as the stadium is, you know, going to be demolished for the new one. Um, that alone, that was a. I mean, the most crazy week of my life. And I mean, it's something I'll never forget. Now, did you ever have any thoughts of you being on the air? When I was real young, but I felt, and I developed this thought pretty early. I always thought the chances to succeed were going to be better behind the scenes. So therefore, I went all in on that. And I think there's a lot of people that kind of straddled both. They may have come in as producers, but they wanted to be on the air. And it's worked out for some of those people. But for some, you know, they, they were kind of doing both and it may not have worked out. But I just figured, all right, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to really do well at this. I'm going to you know, bust my rear end. And rather than, you know, dabble in that, I'm going to go after this. And I'm real happy I did. And it's yeah. not for everybody. Yeah, you know, just being all manager, in in one side. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at the time it was being a producer and then, you know, gearing up towards being a manager. Being a manager is not for everybody. But being on the air is not for everybody either. Um, but I never, you know, I never thought deep down that seriously about approaching that because I fell in love with what I was doing behind the scenes. And that really happened in Atlanta at 790, where I may have had those thoughts from a younger age. And I thought, you know what? No, I love producing. I, wa I want to do this. I want to ride this wave. And, you know, ultimately, it's, it's the work that you put in. I mean, you, my dad always used to say, the harder you work, the luckier you, the luckier you get. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a hard worker by nature. And when you work hard, it creates avenues. And I just, when you love the work you do, it allows you to do better. You don't inherently think about, oh, this is work. I want to get done with this. Like, I truly enjoy the work. I would likely be consuming the content if I wasn't working in it. And that's the beauty of it. So of course. To me, it, you know, hey, I got to listen to this, but I also got to work with these people and grow it and be creative and build something special. So I love, I love being a part of something that I would otherwise be consuming. And so why do you think that sports talk radio, that people gravitate it 
towards it so much and want to consume it so much. What do you think the appeal is? And frankly, it's a lot of what we've spoken about, the drama of sports. It's that human element. Nothing in the world can, I mean, there's nothing that invokes those same type of feelings and emotions, positive and very <laughs> negative, That's right. like sports. But then radio, which we talked about, it's that intimate relationship. It's storytelling. It's reaction. Now, listen, radio can be two-way as well with callers, with instant feedback. And TV doesn't always work that way because it's usually one way. But with radio, being able to combine the, the greatest male soap opera, that is sports, with the very intimate medium that radio is, it, it combines two very special things. And that's, why, like, and that's why I fell in love with it when I was very young because, man, I was so passionate about my teams. And now I had people that I respected giving their opinion with personality and with very credible guests that made me feel like I was part of the conversation. And I love just, you know, I love creating that. It just, I mean, it, it really is magical at the end of the day. But ultimately, it's having great storytellers that do their homework. They have very educated opinions and they, re, they relate to the audience. And it's not easy asking for people's time. And listen, it doesn't cost them money. We just want people's time and you have to have very compelling personalities to be able to earn that time. And when you do get that and you build an audience, it's, it's a great feeling. Yeah, because obviously that's something that they can't get back is their time. So it's a big investment. Yeah. So when you can have that type of appreciation, I think you can help build better content that no would engage question. the listeners even more so. Now, you mentioned mentors. Mm -hmm. Who else mentored you through your career? So I'll tell you, my, you know, really my radio rabbis and radio fathers were the ones that got me into radio in the first place. And that was Andrew Saltzman, Steak Shapiro, no relation, uh, down at 790. Yes. You know them oh, from, I do. from being down there and listening. They were the first ones that really paved the way. And I'll tell you, I've been lucky because I've worked with a lot of people and I've tried to maintain as many relationships as possible, despite being busy in a job and having a family. But I've been blessed to work with a lot of people over the years, not only in this industry, in some other industries as well, that every time those move questions come up, because I've done it a lot of times, I call and they always make it very clear. They don't make the decision for me, but they tell me what I should be thinking about. And it helps you know, see through all the weeds of those long you know, pro and con lists. Well, now in your position, I would imagine you're probably at a point where the transition is occurring, where people are going to be seeking you out as a mentor to them. And I'll listen, I love giving back. And I'll always, you know, if somebody wants to have the conversation and they're willing to pick up the phone and call, we'll have those conversations. But I wouldn't be anywhere without having that in my background. So yeah. you, you got to give back. You have to. And by the way, like, I, you know, some say, hey, do you have a job? And usually that answer is no. Very <laughs> seldomly do we have a job. But still, if I can put you in a position, give you the right perspective, the right idea, or maybe, you know, create a connection, whatever it might be. Listen, it may not be exactly, hey, I'm going to call this person and get rich. Like, it's not going to work that way. But I love to just give my perspective, give my opinion to help people out. And so speaking of that perspective and giving back, I mean, you've given me a lot of time, so I greatly appreciate it. But wrapping up here, what other words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you that you'd like to share? I mean, you've, you've already shared quite a bit, but do you have any phrases, quotes, or mottos, or just any other type of life advice that has meant a lot to you? My biggest thing, I mean, from a work perspective first, work makes up the majority of your <laughs> the, the hours you're awake, let's just That's say right. that. Yes, people are going to sleep, but generally people are going to work well over half the time, at least during the week. You got to like what you do. You got to find enjoyment. It may not be your passion, 
but you got to find enjoyment out of it because I really think, dating back to something I said, if you like what you do, if you're interested in the content of your job, you inherently do that much better. So I think you have to still, like, it may not be, all right, I want to be a movie star. That means at all costs, I'm going to just go be a movie star. You know, you have to be in touch with your priorities at that given time and create your goals based off your priorities. But you still have to like what you do and you have to find enjoyment. And my, my attitude always has been, like, I don't sweat the small stuff. I, like, my, I, what I always think is if it's not going to bother me tomorrow, why should I get worked up about it today? And life is too short. You have to enjoy the journey. You have to. And yes, yeah, some things aren't going to be perfect. But I, you know, it's easy for me to say because I am generally pretty mild-mannered. But I, I just don't get how people ruin their days and make terrible decisions over something that's really not that big of a deal that's not going to affect them the next day. It's much better to just kind of be happy. Now, still be demanding, still have high hopes and goals. You know, that's one thing to be, you know, blindfolded and naive and just get stomped on. That's not what I'm saying. But you still have to like find happiness in life however you possibly can. Well said. And you've created some happiness for me just by being a guest on my crazy podcasting journey, Scott. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's been fun. The Greek word meiraki is used to describe what happens when you leave a piece of yourself, and that can be your soul, some type of creativity, or just your love in your work. And it's when you love doing something, anything that is, so much that you put something of yourself into it. And it seems that Scott continues to do this each day because he's truly found his work or this career that he enjoys. And inherently, once you can do that, then Mayrocky just happens without even you thinking about it. Now that finishes episode 90. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.